Stuart Holman here. Welcome to the seventh in our series of daily devotionals hitting the high points of the book of Acts. When we looked at Acts chapter 13 in the previous episode and the way that the Jews of Pisidian Antioch grew jealous of the positive response to the Christian gospel in their town, stirring up opposition, we saw the roots of a new threat to the Christian faith. It wasn't in the form of crushing and direct opposition from the Roman Empire. Instead, it came from the traditional Jew unwilling to accept that God's grace could ever extend to the non-Jewish world. It was a jealous opposition to the inclusion of the Gentiles within the newly flourishing sect of Judaism called the Way, which we know as Christianity. And so with the rise of Christianity, the leaders of Judaism soon insisted that if the Gentiles are going to become followers of a Jewish prophet, or, or maybe a Jewish kind of Messiah figure, as the followers of the way were suggesting, look, if the Gentiles wanted in with that faction, well, they'd have to become full converts to Judaism first. They would have to bind themselves to the law of Moses, then become followers of Jesus this tension over the inclusion of the Gentiles into the Christian faith, independent of its roots in Judaism, triggered a significant rift among the Christian community, one that had to be resolved urgently and well before it tore the church apart just as it was beginning to grow. We read about the resolution to this schism in Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into a sharp dispute and debate with them. Of course, circumcision was the gateway to becoming a fully-fledged Jewish convert. It signified that a man was taking upon himself all the obligations of the law of Moses in order to join the covenant community of Israel. That's how the Gentile inclusion debate was framed for the Christian church. That's why this sharp dispute arose. So what will they do? Verse 2, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. So notice when they arrive in Jerusalem, that there is already a process that has been set up. To achieve a resolution. So first of all, in this process, the problem, the question, is stated. Verse 5, Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So the meeting did not include every Christian in Jerusalem but only the recognised leadership, the apostles and elders. We see here that the kingdom of God depends upon its God-appointed leadership. It's not a democracy where the majority gets to vote for whatever the truth is going to be. 
Next comes the careful consideration of the issue. Verse 7, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Peter, of course, is referring back to his experience with Cornelius and all that happened when the Holy Spirit was first given to the Gentiles. Notice that the debate is not about clever arguments or persuasive rhetoric or even cheap point scoring. Peter simply points the meeting to consider what God has already decisively revealed in his dealings with the Gentile Christians. That's the first point to be weighed up, the gift of the Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Then Peter's second point, made explicit in verses 10 and 11, is that salvation is by grace, not by circumcision. The next point to be made in this discussion is the experience of Paul and Barnabas in declaring the gospel among the Gentiles. So verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. So the third point to be considered then is that, look, God has clearly demonstrated his powerful approval of Paul's ministry among the Gentile world with these signs and wonders. God is clearly leading this. The fourth point to be considered is the testimony of the Old Testament scriptures. Verse 13. When they finished, James spoke up. Now, this is the James, the half-brother of Jesus, who by now has become really the major leader of the Jerusalem church, the same one who wrote the book of James, which we've got in our Bibles. James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. So James, having cited and applied Amos 9 verses 11 and 12, and perhaps also Jeremiah 12, 15, James brings the discussion to a decisive conclusion. Circumcision is not to be a requirement of inclusion in the Christian church. There is no reason to make it so difficult for them as they turn to God. And the interesting thing is that we have access to this decision-making process. It's recorded for us by Luke. This decision was not made in secret or through a political process. 
Instead, it was a determined, communal, open effort to seek the will of God, to understand his mind on what was a formative and pretty thorny issue. The next step to be taken, of course, was clear communication for the benefit of all Christians everywhere. So James continues, Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. And then comes a quote from the letter. There's, there's an introduction and a preface. But the meat of the letter is uh, really in verse 28. They write, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. In other words, circumcision is not a prerequisite for becoming a Christian. The new convert does not have to bind themselves to obedience to the law of Moses. Instead, they are saved by grace, sealed by the Holy Spirit, and full members of the body of Christ by faith in him alone. But wait, what's the deal with the final parts of verse 29, abstaining from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality? Is that some kind of new but you know reduced form of the law of Moses, an easier law to be adopted by Gentile Christians? No, it's not. Instead, it actually seems to be a concession to Jewish sensibilities. Since the law of Moses is so well known, read in the synagogues every Sabbath, the taboos with food and blood are still very challenging for the Jews. Uh, which particular problematic sexual behaviours are included in this list? It's not unclear. Only the general term for sexual immorality is used and something which Jesus himself taught about anyway. But look, the main point of this letter is clear that Gentile Christians would do well, out of respect for the Jewish brothers, to abstain from these things. It's a matter of grace in the body of Christ, respecting the challenges some freedoms create for others. As a sign of love for the Jewish brothers, let the whole church refrain from these taboos. And so, with no restrictions on circumcision, the letter is broadcast far and wide and the unity of the church is preserved and the gospel continues to flourish. So, as we give God thanks today for our full inclusion in the body of Christ without circumcision, perhaps we might also reflect upon the conflicts within the Christian church today. There are many, and let's be honest about that. How might we contribute to their gracious resolution under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ and his will expressed in his word? Perhaps you might pray for one particular issue of church discord today, asking God for its good resolution such that the gospel will continue to flourish 
and we live as Christians united in Christ.